Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. The vast and vibrant world of biblical commentary has, over the generations, shaped not only our understanding of the Tanakh, but Judaism's worldview and values as well. The biblical commentator, or portion is a spiritual seeker proposing answers to the theological and existential questions raised by the text and serving as mediator between Tanakh and the reader. In a widely hailed work, Great Biblical Commentators, Dr. Abigail Rock of Blessed Memory gives us a groundbreaking study that surveys over 20 of the greatest biblical exegetes in the course of Jewish history. Beginning with Onkelos, continuing with leading medieval commentators such as Rashi, Ibn Ezra, and Ramban, and Aharonim such as Malbim and Netziv, and ending with influential 20th century commentators. It includes discussions of the commentators' exegetical methods, their interactions with their historical period and environment, and their contributions to the world of exegesis. Through exploration of the commentators' biographies and methodologies, and enriched by carefully chosen and insightful examples from their works, Abigail Rock contextualizes and illuminates their philosophies while giving us a glimpse into their masterful thought and analyses. Join us as we speak with Abigail Rock's brother, Avraham Popko, about his sister's rich legacy in Torah teaching and her recently published book, Great Biblical Commentators. You're listening to New Books in Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm your host, Michael Morales. Rabbinate Dr. Abigail Popko Rock was a prominent lecturer and educator in the field of Tanakh and its exegesis. Dr. Rock received her PhD from the Tanakh Department of Bar Ilan University for her thesis on the biblical exegete Rav Yosef Ibn Kaspi. She was one of the first women licensed as a rabbinical advocate and taught at the Institute for Rabbinical Advocates. Due to her unique skill in deriving inspirational educational messages from literary and exegetical analysis, Abigail Rock was a sought-after lecturer and a source of inspiration for students all over the world. Her untimely passing at the age of 48 left her family and community bereft of her teachings, sage advice, and unfailing good humor. Avram, welcome to New Books in Jewish Studies. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to be here. Avraham, please tell us about Abigail Rock, your sister. Tell us about her life and her family. Um, Abigail Rock, uh, my younger sister, born in 1971, New York City. Uh, I'm sorry. She was born in 1971 in um, Tucson, Arizona. And um, uh, we then my father, my family moved to Atlanta, Georgia. My father had an opportunity to serve as rabbi there. And... Um, we came to uh, to Israel in 1976, and um, from a very young age, she was always. My my parents are both scholars. Uh, my parents both like learning and both like teaching. A Tanakh, Tanakh is the Hebrew Bible, 
uh, what the Testament or what Christians call the Old Testament. And um, my parents are scholars of Bible, of Talmud, and our house was a, was a very scholarly house. The stories that we grew up on were the stories of the Bible and the stories of the, uh, the Talmud. And we had a chance to meet the great teachers of uh, Tanakh, of Bible in Israel. At the time, a known name was Professor Nechama Leibowitz. Nechama Leibowitz was a teacher of Tanakh who both Abigail and I had a chance to learn from. Abigail has a daughter, Nechama, who is named after uh, Nechama, Nechama Leibowitz, the late, uh, the late scholar who really impacted the way uh, people learn. And then as she grew up, she became more and more interested in learning and in teaching. Her passion was uh, was teaching, and that was a passion that she and I shared. I'm I'm a technology guy. I work in high tech. I develop software. But and as 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 fulfillment or fulfillment for meaning, I like teaching, and mainly I like teaching Tanakh. I teach Tanakh in my community in the local synagogue. I teach Tanakh to various uh, study groups. And they teach Tanakh sometimes to teachers of Tanakh in order to, Tanakh, when I say the word Tanakh, Tanakh is Hebrew for Bible. It's the acronym of Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, the law, the prophets, the writings. Uh, and, and when it's acronized, so we pronounce it uh, Tanakh, Bible. Uh, Bible in Hebrew means the book. And that's not a word that's often used in, in, in Hebrew. Sorry, Bible in English means the book or book. Um, in Hebrew, we call it again, Tanakh. So Abigail and I would share that passion. We would talk a lot about um, about teaching methods, about ideas in teaching, about challenges that teachers uh, that teachers face. And um, she has uh, five children, uh, one of whom is married, two of whom are on the way to uh, being uh, married. I'm still in close touch with. Uh, her family. She passed away from cancer about uh, three years ago. Her third, uh, the anniversary of her passing, what we call in Hebrew sometimes the yard site. The anniversary of her passing is coming up. And um, we miss her terribly. We miss her terribly, terribly. She's She left. And I still have two very, very healthy parents who have uh, continued on in life. She had cancer uh, for a long time prior. She was in and out of remission um, for 10 years uh, before she passed on. And during those 10 years, we actually became very, very close and we in, had a chance to explore other aspects of learning and teaching. Maybe later on in this podcast, I'll have a chance to talk about that as well. So that's me and the and my younger and wiser sister, Abigail. Now, Abigail also profoundly inspired many students as a teacher of Torah. Would you give us an impression of her devotion and teaching of Torah? Well, so her her devotion, and this is a thing that students uh, remember. Um, anybody anybody that ever taught a student knows that deeply, deeply fulfilling experience. When you look into the eyes of a of a student and you see a reflection of understanding, that they actually understand what you mean, and and the person who you're talking to grasps it. It's it's unbelievably fulfilling, and especially if it's material that you're passionate about. Um, and she, she, that gave her deep fulfillment. She taught when she was very, very sick. And many of her students remember her lying on a couch, very, very ill. But the, the combination of, of cancer and chemotherapy could wreak havoc on one's body. Um, we don't wish it on anybody, but it really, it, it, 
it 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 takes a it takes a toll from your from your being. And Abigail would still teach, and students would come to her house, or she would come to class, and she would even teach for for a short while. And um, we celebrate in in a week's time. We celebrate uh, Jerusalem Day. Jerusalem Day is the day that in 1967 Jerusalem was uh, was liberated. And on Jerusalem Day, Abigail used to like teaching the the psalm ask for the peace of Jerusalem. And Abigail had insights about the song for ask for the peace of Jerusalem. May your loved ones rest in peace. And um, she hadn't taught for a few months already because she was very, very sick and she actually passed away less than a month later. But she had uh, requested to teach and she said, I really want to teach this chapter yet once again. And she was able to, to convey uh, the community and the students. And the recording is available online. If you go to the, uh, to the Abigail's website, which... Uh, if you could perhaps share in the meeting, in the podcast notes, you'll be able to find Abigail's lecture in Hebrew and in English on the Psalm of Ask for the Peace of Jerusalem, a beautiful, beautiful lesson that she was passionate about teaching. And every every Jerusalem day, when we commemorate the victory of 1967, we actually learn the, learn the chapter and talk about ideas that Abigail had taught us about that uh, that chapter. So that's a, a, a thing about her dedication to teaching and her dedication to her, her students. There is one particular method or or we or area of teaching that was important to her. If it's okay, I'd like to to share with, with our our listeners. Abigail is always very fascinated, like many teachers of Tanakh, by the story part of of the Bible. Mainly, uh, mainly we would talk about let's say uh, Genesis and Exodus, where where there's a great deal of of the story narrative. And one of the issues that scholars or people that have read Bibles from a very, very young age, a problem we face is, and many of the audience I'm sure will sympathize with this, is we no longer have that experience of the primal reading, the first time that you're reading something. It's been spoiled for us in some sense. We are, we are unable to experience that, that charm of reading it the first time. So I, if I open my, my book in Genesis, and it came to be after these things that the God, that, that the Lord, the Elohim, tested Abraham. Now, I know the story ends well, and it's, it's okay. I, I, I don't have the drama about it. And we read about Joseph and his brothers stripped him of his garment, the garment with the stripes, let's say, and they threw him into the pit and they sold him to the Ishmaelites. It's hard for me to get worked up about it because I have already read the story so many times that I know that it has a happy uh, it has a happy ending. He gets reunited with the family, and he meets his father again, and they live happily ever after until exodus. And that is something that that we miss. We miss. We miss. You know, because we we like like if we ever go to a movie or read a book, I don't want anybody to to spoil it for me and uh, spoiler alert and tell me what the end of the book or the movie is. And one way in which we can get back that primal reading is when we learn with. St- students who have never experienced this story. So if you learn with your children or with your students, and for them it's new, then by proxy it's new for you. Because if you're a good teacher and you have a good, and you try to get into your student's head and you try to understand what she is now experiencing, then for a fleeting moment, you're reading it again for the first time. And it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling because you're now experiencing it again by proxy through your student's uh, soul. Uh, to some, to some sense, and uh, so when Abigail would teach, she would teach every chapter as though it's the first time she's teaching the chapter, and that's a wonderful gift many teachers do not have. And 
she would experience it with the student. It's like almost reading your, like when you go to a movie with your child and your child is seeing it for the first time, then you're seeing it for the first time in some sense. And she would teach like that. And when she taught teachers, she would often emphasize the value of experiencing it for the first time. So she would warn against, and it came to be after these things that God tested Abraham or God tried Abraham, never ever say, and it was before, and it came after these things that God only tested Abraham or God just tested Abraham. You don't know that he just tested Abraham. I mean, you know it because you read the story already. And the story is, is just, and, and teachers by out of habit or out of ritual might let a word like that slip in. And it came to be after these things that God was just testing Abraham in the end, you know, Isaac, uh, survived the, uh, the ordeal. So, so she warned against when teaching the story and when reading the words and when translating the words and interpreting the words, um, do not, do not let your, your knowledge of the end of the story, uh, creep, creep in. When teaching Tanakh, when teaching Bible to non-Hebrew speakers, uh, uh, Abigail and me, and we would talk about this a lot, it was one of the topics that we were very interested in, were aware of the difference between translation and interpretation. And it's a fuzzy line, and it's not easy to, to always stay on the line of interpretation, of translation. And one might even argue that every translation is an interpretation, and there's there's almost no way... Uh, to avoid it. And the best you could do is at least be aware. Be aware of when you are translating and when you are um, when you are in, interpreting. Uh, there's a verse in uh, in Kings, um, which in Hebrew is highly, highly compact. And in English, we translate it as, let not he who is um, buckling his belt be as pride as he who is unbuckling his, his belt. And, or, or something like that. A belt meaning his war, uh, his war vest, or his, his something like that. And in, in Hebrew, it's, it's a highly, highly compact, and it really delivers a punch. And in English, it sounds a little clumsy. So we have to find another way, perhaps, to, to interpret that, uh, that line of let not he who is putting on his war garment be as proud or be as self-confident as the gentleman who's undoing his uh, work. So that's just a few examples. Turning now to Abigail's recently published book, Great Biblical Commentators, how did this unique book come together and what was her goal in writing it? So there is an institute in Israel called the Herzog Institute for Research at Home. And they publish a weekly newsletter or a, a series of weekly newsletters. And they knew that Abigail was doing her research on a medieval uh, Spanish uh, scholar named Ibn Caspi, the son of Caspi, literally the son of silver. And he was a, uh, he was a person that um, provided an exegesis or a, or a, in, uh, or a commentary on, uh, on the Bible, mainly on the book of Genesis. And Abigail wrote her PhD. And at some point she was approached by this institute and they said, well, you have such interesting things to say about all the scholars. Why don't you write as part of your monthly, um, uh, part of your monthly uh, newsletter? And it's a monthly newsletter that was written originally in Hebrew. About each each month, write about a different commentator. It went through uh, a year long, and I actually have a special feeling towards this one because a lot of the material we researched together and we discussed together, and I would re review her raw notes. And this went over for about a year. But I think there are about twelve or thirteen commentators. 
And then she was approached by Magid Press, or Koran Press, the Hebrew equivalent, the Hebrew, and asked to compile it into a book about the commentators. And so that's, that's how the book came into being. And it's a very, very special book because what it does is it goes as each commentator. And Abigail believed, and I agree with her on this one, the commentary provided by the commentator is highly influenced by his biography. And that's that's a good thing. That's it's not it it doesn't taint the commentator the commentary or it doesn't degrade it to say well he's letting his personal life into it. It elevates it. It means a person comes and learns Bible with his whole with his whole being. So each commentator she would to the uh, to the uh, limit of her uh, ability research their biography. Maybe in what uh, what academies did they learn? Or where, who were their, their teachers or their mentors? Uh, what did they do for a living? What, uh, how did they influence things? How did they perceive themselves? How did they perceive the, the Torah, the law, the, the, the Tanakh? And through that, uh, the lens, try to understand their perspective. So you mentioned, uh, before the talk, you mentioned Nachmanides. Nachmanides, in Hebrew, we call him Ramban, Rabbi Moses, son of Nachman, hence the name Nachmanides. And he wrote a commentary on the entire uh, Tanakh and a very, very insightful uh, commentary. And one of the things we know about Ramban, Ramban lived in the Spanish city of Barcelona. At the time, it was uh, Catalonia. And um, he he desperately wanted to visit the Holy Land. He wanted to to live in Israel. And at the end of his days, he did live in Israel. And that has a very, very strong influence on his commentary. His, whenever he translates the book of Genesis, which in the Ramban's opinion is a book about, the, we, we, we commonly we say it's a book about the birth of the world, the birth of the Jewish people. Ramban, Nachmanides, says it's about the birth of our relationship to Israel. It's a book about how the Jewish people uh, uh, came to Israel and how the Jewish people left Israel and how they one day will come back to Israel. That's the main theme of the Bible, maybe the main theme of the, of the Bible. Now, there's a word, in, in Bereshit, in Genesis, there's a word in the entire Torah. In Hebrew, if we go back to the translations, interpretations, there's a word called, there's a word, Aretz. How would you, uh, uh, Professor Morales, translate the word Aretz? Land or earth. Land or earth. And sometimes it means land in the sense of country, like Egypt is called Aretz. Sometimes it is called land in the sense of the, the platform which grows out fruits and vegetables, right? Sometimes it is aretz where we build houses and where we walk and where we live. And sometimes aretz means the land of Israel. The land of Israel is sometimes called the land or the earth. Ramban is, is highly aware of when this Aretz means one things or the other. And if you read Nachmanides in, in the translation, I would suggest when you're reading Nachmanides either in Genesis or in the last two um, uh, chapters or last three chapters of uh, the book of Levi's or in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, uh, notice where the translation is earth or land or country or and and there's there's a nuance there that uh, that the Ramban Nachmanides and that very that a lot of that to an extent is tainted by his view that the Jews 
live in the Arets, in, in Israel, in, in, in the, uh, the Arets. The Jews are the people that, and that's, that's, so that's Nachmanides. And that's one of the things that she was very interested in. It became a book. It was written, published in Hebrew, I think, about two and a half years ago. It became published in English only very, very recently. Um, I hope, I haven't read the, uh, the translation, only I reviewed one or two chapters. Uh, it is my wish, my hope, that the translation actually captures the, the richness and nuance. It's hard to write a book like that, to translate it. It's hard to write a book like that, and it's hard to translate a book like that. So saying, I'm hoping that, that the people that are listeners, those of us that are fortunate enough to come across this book and be able to, to study this book, it's not a book you read, it's a book you study. Those of us that are fortunate enough to, uh, to study this book, to read it, read it slowly, um, and I would suggest the way uh, that you study it is perhaps a way to study it might be to read the chapter, but on occasion actually open the commentary. If you have access to Hebrew, that's best. If you don't, then try to find an English translation of the commentary and read the commentary inside in context. Uh, see how it looks. It, it'll it'll give you a certain feeling for the magic of what those uh, wonderful uh, exegesis or commentators are trying to uh, to provide us. Um, she she did not treat them as dead. Rashi, Nachmanides, Unkelus, the the translator, they're not dead. They're very very much alive, and we 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 learn from them, and they teach us, and and we argue with them, we negotiate with them, uh, we ask them to to explain things using different words. They're 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 very very much alive. Those of us that have had the misfortune perhaps of of losing a parent or losing a loved one. We, we know that feeling of we still have a relationship with them and we care about them and we, we even talk to them and they, and I'm, I'm not getting all wooey here. I mean, we really talk to them and they talk back to us and we, we seek guidance for them. You know, if we're more rational, we might say, what would they have said? And if we're a little more spiritually inclined, we actually might say to ourselves, what do they say or what do they think about that? And Abigail believed that in some very real sense, these commentators are still teaching. So, we, she would be very comfortable with the phrase, not Rashi said, or Nachmanides said in the past tense, but Nachmanides says, or Rashi says. Rashi teaches us that, Nachmanides teaches us that. And she was aware, Abigail, my sister, that when you say Rashi teaches us that, it's, 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 it's using the present sense, not as a, as a manner of speaking, of course, but as a manner of thinking or conceptualizing the way our relationship to the, uh, to the commentators. Avraham, would you give us an example from the book of some of her helpful insights on a commentator? So I'll talk about uh, Rashi. Um, Rashi, uh, Rabbi Shlomo, son of Isaac. In Hebrew, he's called Rabbi Shlomo Yitzchak. But he's known in the vernacular as Rashi. And Rashi is one of the earliest, some consider him the first commentator on the uh, Bible. Before him, Rashi was preceded by Unkelus, which is a linear translation. And by the Talmud in Medrash, Midrash, which is a, um, uh, a an extra level of, of oral narrative that accompanies the, uh, the Bible. But it's Rashi that actually has a linear commentator verse by verse on the, uh, on the Bible. That's Rashi. That is, that's what he brought to the table. He's considered the first of the commentators. And Rashi, and, and Abigail, I think, has three chapters about Rashi. He was, he's really the most influential commentator. And most Jews, when you learn Torah, when you learn Bible, when you learn the, the book, the law, and you have a, a verse that's uh, challenging or you're not uh, clear, you say, let's see what Rashi says. What does Rashi say? Rashi is the default, is the go-to. And, and uh, children, when they learn uh, in school, 
you learn Bible, you learn Chumash with Rashi. You learn the Bible, the Pentateuch with Rashi. That's that's the default. So she wrote a great deal about Rashi. And there's a, an interesting question. Did Rashi have that historical perspective? Did he know that his translation is going to be what it was? Or was he just writing a local commentary? And it seems that Rashi was really thinking from a very uh, wide perspective. And like and from a very long. And he saw himself not only as a translator, but as an educator. Uh, for instance, um, there is a, um, a skin ailment uh, in the Bible called tsarat, uh, psoriasis. It's called leprosy. Uh, it's commonly used. But it's not, it's not, at least in many, according to many students of the Bible, it's not what, what a, a, uh, a dermatologist today might call leprosy. It is a sign or, or punishment from, from God for certain violations, and it manifests itself in um, in a white, a very, very white, white as snow uh, skin. It could happen to a person's entire body, or it could happen to one uh, limb. Usually, it happens if you read Bible either on your hand or on your forehead, but it could happen. It could happen anywhere on on one's body. It's called leprosy, tzarat. and the midrash says. That leprosy happens for a wide variety of reasons. It happens, I think, the Midrash enumerates 11 reasons for which one could get leprosy. Rashi mentions one reason for which you get leprosy. According to Rashi, you get leprosy for Lashon Hara, for speaking evil against, against fellow men, either as a collective or as an individual. And every time that leprosy is mentioned, or many times when leprosy is mentioned in the Bible, Rashi says leprosy is about Lashon hara, literally the bad tongue or the evil tongue, but it's a figurative manner of speech, speaking evil about other people. And Abigail claims that because Rashi had this aversion to Lashon hara, to evil speak, and Rashi was very, very careful, he used this selective quoting of the Midrash, of the of the interpretation in order to... So anybody that learns Chomish with Rashi, if you catch him on the street and you say, what is leprosy about? They will say, oh, leprosy, that's for speaking bad about other people. It's its obvious. It's taken for granted. It's the only reason that many of us know. There's a medrash that has another 10 reasons. But because of Rashi, and Avgal points out, it's because of Rashi that we know that leprosy, that, that disease comes about uh, from uh, from Lashon, Lashon Hara. So that's like an example of an insight that she has about a particular commentator's attitude. So did Abigail have a few favorites among the commentators? That's an interesting, interesting question. Now, when you, if somebody would ask you as a parent, who was your favorite child, you would be very, very careful to answer that, you know, when you would consider a question like that. If you're, if you're a good parent, the proper answer is, nope, I love everybody the same. But maybe if you're more nuanced, you would say, I love him for his quick wit and I love her for her diligence. And I love him for his discipline, and I love her for his the way he uh, he honors his parents, or whatever it is. The generic statement of "I love all my kids the same," uh, you know, might 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 not sound very convincing to your kids, or might not sound very convincing to. So, so Abigail loved all the commentators the same, but she loved certain aspects about each commentator. She loved Rashi for his simplicity, for his, 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 Rashi is very, very short. And it's obvious that, or obvious to me, to her, 
that Rashi spent a great deal of time and, and, and Rashi does not write very long. He writes very, very concise. And anybody that has tried to written a very concise email or, or letter knows how hard it is to write short. It's easy to write long. Rashi is short. She likes Rashi because he's short. And Rashi speaks to you. You could imagine that Rashi is talking to you. Um, she liked the Brabanel. A Brabanel, I don't know if it's been translated into English. Do you know Professor Morales? Has a Brabanel been translated into English? John Isaac of Brabanel. Yes, his Torah commentary was translated by Rob Israel Lazar. So a Brabanel, he had a flair for drama. He liked reading the stories. He liked asking the question about the stories. Rashi, when Rashi analyzes the stories, Rashi rarely asks the question, why did they do what they do? Rashi just believes the Torah tells us what people did, and that's what they did. And the Torah doesn't tell us. It's almost like, like watching a movie. When you watch a movie, you just watch what the characters do. You rarely know what the characters think. You have to infer that from their behavior. And you rarely know it why they did what they did, as opposed to reading a novel, let's say, where the novelist is omniscient, so the novel could tell you what a person felt or what a person uh, believed and why they did what they did. The Bible only tells us what they did. So if I ask a question like, why didn't Rashi, why didn't Yosef Joseph, who was in Egypt, why didn't he send a message to his father saying, hey, dad, I'm, I'm alive, I'm safe? Reasonable question. Rashi never asked it because Rashi didn't feel that the question of why somebody did or didn't do a particular thing is, is a question that we can answer or that we might want to answer. Rashi does that occasionally. I'm generalizing. Rashi does that occasionally, but not always. And Abarbanel asks that question. Ramban asks that question. Abarbanel tries to get into the character's head and discuss it. Abigail taught a lot about Joseph. Joseph was very interesting to her. And Abarbanel, who was a uh, a finance minister to King Fernand during the expulsion of the Jews um, in, in the Great Inquisition in 1492. In 1496, uh, Abarbanel saw himself as a Joseph, as a person who, who has influence in the, uh, in, 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 in the royalty, in the, in, the, in the king's house, and who is his finance minister and still has to be loyal to his, to his family's faith and to his father's faith. And she was very charmed by that, by a person who was able to see his own biography reflected through the biography of uh, a biblical character like Joseph. So that's uh, Abarbanel. Ibn Ezra, um, uh, Moses, son of Ezra, Moses Ibn Ezra, a, uh, a Spanish commentator who came about 100 and some years after Rashi. He was very, very sharp-witted, quick-witted. He liked plays on words. He was bitter. He was cynical. He had a biting humor. And Abigail uh, appreciated uh, that uh, humor uh, about him. The so those are just a few examples of so no favorite, but maybe Rashi. Before we let you go, Avram, can you tell us if there are any further works from Avigail to be published? So Avigail wrote her PhD on um, a commentator, a medieval commentator. There's also a chapter about him in the book called Ibn Kaspi. Ibn was the uh, was the title that the Spanish scholars took son of Ibn Kaspi. Um, who lived in uh, medieval Spain. Uh, so that that PhD is going to be hopefully uh, compiled into a book and maybe translated into English uh, one day. Um, she gave many, many uh, lectures, a lot of which are in English. And if you look through the website, and I highly recommend it, 
you see a very dynamic and energetic teacher. And if you follow the years, unfortunately, you'll be able to also see the, the decline in, in one's health. It's, and, um, so, and those maybe, maybe some, some, somebody will, will transcribe them or follow up on them. Uh, I teach Bible, uh, quite a bit and I quote Abigail a lot and I quote, um, uh, uh, ideas and discussions that we have had towards the end of her life, Abigail uh, became uh, very interested in uh, in discussing death. That's something that people that are end of their lives contemplate. So we learned the book of Ecclesiastes together. The book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew we call it Kohelet, is the book that discusses, especially the last chapter, the very very sad, heartbreaking last chapter about a person reaching the end of their days. And um, there was a statement that we discussed a lot. Actually, Jacob makes the statement when he sees Joseph after the first time for, for many years. After Joseph is, is sold, as is taken away, and he has surely been eaten by a wild beast, and uh, Jacob refuses to accept condolences, he makes a very upsetting statement. He says, I will die, I will go down to Sheol, that's translated as, as hell, I will go down to hell as a sad, bitter man. Uh, he doesn't seek comfort. He doesn't seek. And, and all his sons and all his daughters come up and try to comfort him, but he refuses to find comfort. That means he's a person who is, who is living terrible, terrible tragedy. And when he sees Joseph, he says a, a, a statement. He says, I am willing to die, or this time I am now ready to die. I am no longer afraid of dying. I'm now interpreting a bit. I'm no longer afraid of dying because I see your face. And we discussed at length that idea that when a person sees her or his children's face, he is no longer afraid of dying. That is a very, very powerful statement. And the suggestion or interpretation that I offered is, and, uh, and I discussed this with Abigail, and it's an idea that we'd like to expand on perhaps one day. When we die, everything about us dies. Our, our flesh, our bones our body fluids, our body parts, nothing, nothing, nothing is left except that drop of genetic material that became our child continues to live after we die. There's one little tiny part of, 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 of mommy and daddy that continues to, to grow and live on even after a person has, has died and their body is decomposing and be re reclaimed by, by the earth. Um, because you are dust and you will return to dust. And it says actually in the chapter in Genesis that after God tells Adam, uh, you will worship, you will work the land with the sweat of your brow or the sweat of your, your face until your dying day, for you are earth and you will return to earth. What does Adam do? It says, and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and they had a son named Cain because he, he has a way of, of not dying, at least not dying internally. He's going to have a child. And that child is going to go, right, Adam, Seth, and us down to, to Avram Pupko and Michael Morales. There is a continuation. There is life. So um, so that's like an idea that she took deeply and took deep comfort. And I said, Afigail, you're able to look into your children's faces, and they came from you. And they're going to continue living after you and I are no longer, uh, are no longer here. So that's, that's the parting thought. That's just something I was eager to share with you. Uh, about my sister, the author of the book, about the commentators, who I miss terribly. And um, again, thank you. Thank you very much for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure to meet you and a pleasure to share some of these thoughts with you.
Thank you. Abraham, thank you for being with us and sharing about Abigail Rock's life and work. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was a pleasure uh, to, to, to be with here and, and meet you and meet your audience. Friends, you've been listening to New Books and Jewish Studies, a channel of the New Books Network. Until next time, goodbye.